Our sermon passage for this morning comes from the book of Nahum, chapter 1, and we will be reading verses 9 through 14. Nahum 1, 9 through 14. What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. For while tangled like thorns and while drunken like drunkards, they shall be devoured like stubble, fully dried. From you comes forth one who plots evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are safe and likewise many, yet in this manner they will be cut down when he passes through. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more, for now I will break off his yoke from you and burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given a command concerning you. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer. Out of the house of your gods I will cut off the carved image and the molded image. I will dig your grave, for you are vile. At this time, I want to call the kids forward. Last Sunday, we learned about how God reminded his children of the great rescue from Egypt. And he did this so that they would not be afraid of Nineveh. They could know that they were safe because God controls everything, even storms. Floods, earthquakes, and volcanoes are all under God's control. And God's children can know that they're safe because God controls everything so that they will be saved. This morning, I want to tell you about another way that Nahum teaches God's children. And when I say children, I do mean little ones like you. Now, all of you know your alphabet, right? How did you learn it? By the song, right? Songs are an easy way to remember. Even four-year-olds can learn that song, maybe even younger. Poems are another way to learn. They rhyme and they have the same number of syllables. You know how to count syllables, right? Yep. So, Aiden does it by clapping. That's why I did that. God wants his children to learn what his word says. And one way that he made it easy for little children to memorize verses from the Bible was to use songs or poems. Now, in the first chapter of Nahum, there is a poem. In the original Hebrew language, there's a poem. And it has ten lines. And each line starts with each of the first ten letters of the alphabet in order. There are many chapters in the Bible that do this. Grown-ups already know the alphabet, so I believe that God made his Bible to be written this way for little children. Little children who lived in the time of Nahum might hear their dads and moms talking about the big scary army of Nineveh that wanted to attack them. But when they read Nahum chapter 1, they would learn a song about how great their God is, and they would be learning their ABCs too. Now this means that God wants all his people, even the smallest little children, to hear his word. That's why we have the children's sermon. That's why we have Sunday school classes for you. It's why we love to have you sitting here with your parents during the whole service. Even though you may not understand what we sing and say, you're learning about God and you're hearing his word. And that's what he wants. The verses that we read a few minutes ago tell God's children that even though they are weak and even though their enemies are strong, God is stronger still. So God's people never need to be afraid because God will always protect his children. 
Sometimes He has to discipline them just like your dads and moms discipline you. No one likes to be disciplined, whether it's being grounded or spanked or whatever. Nobody likes it. But parents do it to help their children learn right from wrong. And the verses that we read teach us that God used Nineveh to discipline His disobedient children of Judah. But since Nineveh hated God and His church, God would not let them hurt His church. And remember that God wants even little children to hear this, and that's why He put a lesson with the ABCs in the chapter. Little children need to learn to trust in God just like grown-ups need to learn to trust in God. Grown-ups and children are sinners and they need to trust Jesus and His death on the cross to save them from their sins. And the book of Nahum helps us learn that lesson. Okay, we're going to pray and then you can return to your seats, okay? O Heavenly Father, Thy Word is perfect, restoring the soul, making wise the simple, and enlightening the eyes of the blind, the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes. We, however, are by nature blind and incapable of doing anything good, and Thou wilt relieve only those who have a broken and contrite heart and who revere Thy Word. We entreat Thee that Thou wouldst illumine our darkened minds with Thy Holy Spirit and give us a humble heart, free from all haughtiness and carnal wisdom, in order that we, hearing Thy Word, may rightly understand it and regulate our lives accordingly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. While they're headed back to their seats, I want to reread our text briefly just to set it back up, refreshing it in our memories. What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. For while tangled like thorns and while drunken like drunkards, they shall be devoured like stubble fully dried. From you comes one forth who plots evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are safe and likewise many, yet in this manner they will be cut down when he passes through. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. For now I will break off his yoke from you and burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given a command concerning you. Your name shall not be perpetuated any longer. Out of the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the molded image. I will dig your grave, for you were vile. Our passage opens with God proclaiming the destruction of the great city of Nineveh, saying that nothing they do will prevail against him. And there's a strong undercurrent of sarcasm here because they're being told that they have at least this one consolation. This won't happen twice. They will be so utterly destroyed that they won't be able to muster a second rising. Their best efforts will resemble the confusion of tangled thorns or the staggering of a drunk. Further down, we read of the the wicked counselor who we take to be the the then-sitting king of Nineveh. Now, there's about a 50-year window within which this prophecy was given, so we can't pinpoint precisely which one of the Assyrian kings this was, but what we do know from ancient history is that any one of the Assyrian kings could have easily fit the bill. Now, by way of setting up our, the points of our sermon, I want to just exp- explain something, that there is a view of reality that is presupposed in our text which is the biblical view of covenant solidarity. I want you to think back to Israel's 
exodus from Egypt, which I believe we're intended to do, since the passage has so many exodus motifs. We talked about that last Sunday during the children's sermon. The ten plagues were inflicted upon the entire nation of Egypt, man and beast, because of their covenant solidarity with their Pharaoh and with their gods. Think back even farther to the fall. All of mankind was involved in Adam's violation of the covenant. The transgression of Adam cast all his posterity into the state of sin and misery, which we call original sin. God created Adam as the federal head, that is, as the representative of all mankind. And when he acted in his probationary period in the Garden of Eden, he was acting as the covenant representative of all of his future offspring. In similar fashion, all those whom God has appointed to eternal life, those whom he chose in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world, they are counted in Christ. And just as Adam's sin was imputed to all his posterity, the perfect righteousness of Jesus is imputed to all those who are in him. Now this is a concept that runs throughout the Scriptures in both the Old and the New Testaments. It's an unusual concept for us because our society and culture focuses on the individual. And even within the church, we tend to focus on the individual and the individual's responsibility before God. So it seems counterintuitive to us that the actions of one individual should reflect guilt or innocence upon anyone else. But both facts are true. God does judge the individual, but he also judges on the corporate level as well. So in this passage, we have the wicked counselor, no doubt the king, being personally responsible for his individual sin. But because he is the corporate head, the representative head of his nation, they are punished along with him. Now, not to harp on this point too much, but... Throughout Scripture, we see God's people displaying both a clear understanding of this principle and a submissive acceptance of it. Think of Daniel. The very fact that Daniel and countless other Jews ended up in Babylon was due to this fact of covenant solidarity. The Babylonian exile was God's chastisement of his people for their covenant breaking. Daniel, like many other righteous Jews, had been faithful to God's covenant and was not personally guilty of the sins which brought this discipline upon their nation of Judah. When Daniel read the prophecy of Jeremiah and saw that the foretold 70 years of exile was almost up, he began to pray earnestly for the fulfillment of God's promise. And as Daniel prays, He prays in the person of the entire guilty nation of Judah. He repents for their corporate sins and acts as if he were personally guilty of the sins the rest of the country had committed. He doesn't list a bunch of exculpatory evidence to exonerate himself from guilt in their sin. He understands very well that God deals with his people by way of covenant, so that if the larger majority of the covenant people are guilty of covenant breaking, then the innocent, righteous, and faithful saints may very well have to suffer along through the corporate fate of the entire nation. 
Now, we could cite examples from more recent times. I'm sure we're all aware that many faithful Christians have suffered along with their compatriots during times of war or famine or drought or economic crisis. If God punishes our nation by casting us into an economic tailspin that causes widespread unemployment and poverty, it would be very unwise of us to assume that because we are Christians, we'll somehow be immune to the the effects of such a condition. So, having put all that in place, the things I want to draw your attention to this morning are these. Number one, attacks against the church are attacks against God. Number two, God uses even his enemies for his church's sake. And number three, Christ will triumph over his enemies. So our first point, attacks against the church are attacks against God. There's where we see that principle of covenant solidarity. In verses 12 through 13, God is consoling his people who have been abused by Nineveh. And this teaches us a very important lesson. I think it's the very heart of the book of Nahum. That God identifies personally with his covenant people. In verse 11, the wicked counselor is said to plot evil against the Lord. And here God is assuring His people of their deliverance. Nineveh's plotting evil against the Lord was its plotting against His people, Judah. There's a sense in which Judah should have been completely insignificant in the ancient world. Why would Nineveh get any satisfaction at all out of annexing that little sliver of land? And here we see displayed for us the reality of the enmity between between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The world always hates the church. They may not understand the driving force behind their hatred, but the state of warfare is real. The church represents the reign of God. It represents the law of God. And the world is built on the principle of you will be God's knowing good from evil. And so the people of the world hate everything and anything that reminds them that they are not God. And this is why we see so much hatred against the church. In the early centuries of the Christian era, the church was numerically insignificant and the societal influence was negligible at best. And yet the whole engine of the Roman Empire was bent on their eradication. For the first 300 years of church history, Rome was a virtual bloodbath, drunken with the blood of the saints. Old Testament or New, God's people have always been at the center of controversy or turmoil because the heathen resent the idea of a people chosen by God. And this passage comforts us by showing us that God views an attack on his people as an attack upon himself. As Zechariah 2.8 puts it, he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Remember what Jesus said to Paul on the road to Damascus? Why are you persecuting me? Christ took persecution of his church personally and appeared to Paul and reprimanded him for persecuting him. And we know that Paul was persecuting Christians. Christ took an an assault on his church as an assault on his person. The church is, after all, the body of Christ. If someone were to personally attack or say attempt to attack the first lady and her children, this would be seen as an attack on the president. We all know this. Everyone understands this. 
And this is the way that God views His people, only magnified to an infinitely higher degree. Now we see another interesting insinuation here, and that is that God sees idolatry as a direct attack on Himself. Nineveh is said to have plotted evil against the Lord, and then in our passage we read God commanding her destruction because of idolatry. Now I mentioned earlier that we can't pinpoint exactly which king of Nineveh ruled when this book was written, but I want you to notice how in verse 14 God declares that the king will no longer be remembered. Actually, it says that his name will no longer be perpetuated. Of course, I think that insinuates, first of all, an end of the, loyal, of the royal bloodline. But in a larger way, all Assyrian kings have been pretty much relegated to obscurity. Apart from Sargon and Sennacherib, whose names are actually mentioned in Scripture, there is no other familiar king, name of any Assyrian king. Now, kings in ancient times saw it as an honor to be buried with images of their gods. In our passage, it shows that God deems this as a mark of contempt. His contempt against the kings. Nineveh's kings trusted in their idols, yet he who sits in the heavens laughs. It's a testimony to how poor your state truly is if the best thing you've got going for you is your stone idol or graven image. Paganism was not only the religion of Nineveh, it was also big business as well. And that's one of the true hallmarks of all false religion. And woe be to us if we be guilty of trafficking the things of God. Now this brings us to our second point, and that is that God uses even his enemies for his church's sake. Now what I want to draw your attention to are those words in verse 12. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more, for now I will break off his yoke from you and burst your bonds apart. This is a parenthetical statement, God addressing Judah directly, reminding Judah that Nineveh had simply been a tool in God's hand in order to discipline his church. And this is a notion that, I'm just saying this as an aside, I think it's a notion that is sadly all but non-existent in our day. You remember in the early verses, chapter 2 and 3, that Nineveh employs the idea of jealousy. He's appealing to the familiar scriptural motif of husband and wife, a motif often applied to God's relationship to his people. The church is the object of God's eternal love, and that's what explains this passage. God says to Judah, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. Nineveh had served its purpose as God's rod and was now to be disposed of. The nation of Israel was formally brought into covenant with God in the exodus from Egypt. Now, let me clarify. Israel had been in covenant with God because of his covenant with Abraham but they were formally constituted as a nation among the nations of the earth in their exodus from Egypt. And God had cared for them and had nourished them in the wilderness and had brought them safely into the promised land. Jeremiah 2, verses 2 through 3, we see God recounting the total devotion and loving warmth and pristine purity of those early wedding days. Living in the land of promise, a thoughtful and happy wife ought to have been holy to the Lord. But this was scarcely the case. The rest of Jeremiah 2 recounts the sorry tale of the bride who had become wayward and adulterous. Jeremiah's portrayal of the spiritual odyssey of Israel Judah is the same theme sung by all the other prophets 
Hosea's marriage was to picture God's relationship to his church. It emphasized that wanton apostasy would gain only the loss of freedom until God would pay the price for her sin and bring her back to himself in the latter days. Isaiah 54 relates that though Israel had been forsaken by God because of unfaithfulness, nevertheless, she was yet God's wife and as a repentant people would yet be forgiven and gathered again in righteousness. She would again enjoy the everlasting acceptance and protection of her divine husband. Ezekiel 16 is devoted to the same theme. Jerusalem there is likened to a bride who had become a brazen harlot, even outdoing Sodom in her iniquity. Because she had broken her marriage vow, she had incurred God's chastisement. But God, a faithful and loyal husband, would yet receive her back and remove her shame and humiliation forever. This is a theme that carries through the New Testament as well. Paul reminds the Ephesians that Christ loved the church as a husband loves his wife, and accordingly he sacrificed himself for her that she might be pure and holy and be seen in all of her God-given beauty. Paul rehearses to the Corinthian believers how he, the friend of the bridegroom, had introduced them to Christ. And although she had been a pure virgin, Paul found that the Corinthian church had been susceptible like Eve to the bite of false gospels. And therefore the Corinthians stood in great need of his ministry to them, lest they stray even further. Paul reminds his Corinthian readers, those who make up the waiting bride of Christ, that the church is to have a faithful and productive marriage. And for that reason, she has been married to her saving husband and has become one spirit with him, her body having become the temple of the Holy Spirit. As his bride who both expects his imminent return and is mindful of her union with Christ, the church keeps herself pure, remembering the wedding price that Christ himself has paid. The revelation given through John pictures the joys of heaven at the proclamation of the great wedding supper of the Lamb. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Certainly it is true, although she is wedded to Christ, the church awaits His coming to take her to His home and to the joy of that festive occasion. And Christ warns the waiting church to be ready, watching, and longing for His coming. So again, we see how our text shows us that God used Nineveh to discipline His people and that when they had served their purpose, He would judge them for their sins. And that brings us to our final point, namely that... Christ will triumph over his enemies. The final and ultimate victory of Christ over his enemies is assured by the fact that God is sovereign over all things. Now we've handled this subject multiple times, but since it is so important and since it's the primary target of all the enemies of the Reformed faith, I think we'll tread this path again. God is the primary cause of all things, and yet secondary agents are responsible, fully responsible, for their actions. God sovereignly controls even his enemies for his divinely appointed purposes with regard to his people. And yet these same enemies will pay the ultimate price, destruction, for their treatment of God's people. 
Isaiah 10 states this explicitly with regard to Nineveh. And our passage affirms the same, showing us Nineveh's full responsibility for her actions. And yet God unapologetically states in verse 12 that it is He who has afflicted His people. He was the primary agent in the affliction of His people. And yet Nineveh, as the secondary agent, was fully responsible for her actions. This concept, just like covenant solidarity, which we discussed earlier, runs throughout the scriptures. The Bible plainly teaches that God is the first cause, the primary agent of all things that happen. And I do mean all things that occur. That is to say that no one single act, good or bad, done by anyone who has ever lived or who will ever live, occurs outside the decree of God. And nevertheless, God has so decreed all things so that they must necessarily occur as He has decreed them to occur and to be done by those whom He has decreed to do them in such a way that their personal responsibility for these actions is not nullified. The existence or non-existence of freedom has absolutely no bearing whatsoever on the question of responsibility. God has created us as responsible beings. And Scripture asserts that original sin has rendered man completely unable to do anything righteous or pleasing before God. Absolutely and totally unable to do anything tending to his own salvation. Utterly unable and unwilling to have faith in God or to submit to him. Scripture asserts that the unregenerate man is unable to obey the law of God. Now, when the scriptures say this, and we say this, it's commonly objected that this would make God unjust. It's argued that it would be unfair for God to require of us that which he knows we cannot do. But this is a red herring. It's ridiculous to assert that simply because man fell into sin by eating the forbidden fruit, that God must therefore logically surrender his right to demand obedience. And they stated this way, I hope we can all see how nonsensical that objection is. Just because Adam destroyed himself and his posterity with his iniquity, it does not therefore follow that God must surrender or that God has surrendered his right to perfect obedience. If you blow your life savings at the casino, the mortgage holder of your house doesn't forfeit their right to expect continued payments on that loan. Now, remember... The fact that God is the first cause of all things that happen does not exonerate the secondary causes from their personal responsibility. Think of Genesis 50, where Joseph explicitly declares his brother's culpability, their personal guilt in selling him into slavery. And while without denying this, Joseph also affirms that it was not they, but that it was God who sent him to Egypt. Joseph tells them that they meant their act for evil. And the Hebrew word is ra, which refers to a moral evil. And Joseph tells them that this very act of ra, God meant it for good. God's direct government and control over all things does not negate the personal responsibility of the secondary causes. So looking back at our text, we see two things asserted. God had afflicted his people, and Nineveh had afflicted his people, and the scripture places these two things side by side, asserting that they are one and the same. Clearly shows what we're saying, that God is the first cause or primary agent of all events that take place in history because he has decreed all things. But he has decreed all things to take place 
through the agency of secondary causes and his decree does not mitigate the guilt of the secondary cause or nullify their responsibility. Now, as we've noted many times, many times already this morning, this theme is seen all over Scripture. In Exodus, when God sends Moses to Pharaoh, he tells Moses that Pharaoh will not listen to him because God will harden Pharaoh's heart. And then in the succeeding narrative, it alternates between the reasons that it gives for why Pharaoh refused to obey Moses. In some instances, we're told that Pharaoh hardened his heart. In other instances, we're told that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And it's telling us the same thing. In Joshua 7, when Israel is defeated in battle by the little one-horse town of Ai, Joshua laments that God has given Israel into the hands of the Amorites. In 1 Samuel 4, when the Philistines defeat Israel in battle, the elders of Israel cry out, Why has the Lord defeated us in battle? David's taking, sinful taking of a census is recounted both in 2 Samuel 24 and in 1 Chronicles 21. In 2 Samuel, the impulse to do so is said to have been from God and his displeasure with Israel. In 1 Chronicles, the incitement to the event is said to have been from Satan. So this shows us that not only the human enemies of God's people are at God's disposal, but even the spiritual enemies of God's people are at God's disposal. Knowing that God rules and governs all things for His church should be a great comfort to us. The chaos that we speak of isn't really chaos at all. It is the precisely ordained outworking of God's sovereign plan to glorify himself in the salvation of his people and in the destruction of his enemies. Psalm 110 verse 2 says that Christ rules in the midst of his enemies. It ultimately serves to comfort God's people to know that all things that befall them in this life come from their Father's hand. Imagine if you had a foolproof guide for the whole year's weather. I see you smiling already. How would that affect your farming? Well, you'd work with utter confidence. You'd know in advance how and what to plant. You'd sleep in on the days you knew you couldn't do any work. And you'd be out breaking your back till three in the morning on the days you knew you had to get ahead of the rain. Since you don't possess that knowledge, what do you do? You work hard and hope for the best. But nothing is ever sure. You can't know from one day to the next that a hailstorm won't blow through and flatten your whole crop. The destruction of Nineveh, with which God comforts His people, gives us a foolproof glimpse of the future. Without the knowledge of Jesus' ultimate victory, all we could do is work hard and hope for the best, and mostly cower in fear because of our formidable enemies. In the words of the great hymn, for still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. But the hymn ends with the declaration that one little word will fell him. Nahum gives us the final score. Let us pray. Almighty and most holy God, let all that set themselves and take counsel together against the Lord and against His Christ that would break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from them imagine a vain thing. Let him that sits in the heaven laugh at them and have them in derision. Speak unto them in thy wrath and vex them in thy sore displeasure. 
Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. And wherein the proud enemies of thy church deal proudly, make it appear that thou art above them. Let them be confounded and turned back that hate Zion, and be as the grass upon the housetops, which withereth before it groweth up. Let no weapon formed against thy church prosper, and let every tongue that riseth against it in judgment be condemned. We thank thee that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and every tongue confess, as we do at this time, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. We thank Thee that all power is given unto Him both in heaven and in earth, and that Thou hast set Him over the works of Thy hands, and hast put all things in subjection under His feet, and hast so crowned Him with glory and honor. We thank Thee that Thou hast set Him upon Thy holy hill of Zion, and that He shall rule over the house of Jacob forever, shall reign till He has put all opposing rule, principality, and power, till all His enemies are made His footstool. And thus the seed of the woman shall forever crush the head of the serpent. And we thank Thee that He has taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.